uh, one of my uncles was trained at the Lenin School in Moscow. He was in the class of Ho Chi Minh, Joseph Braz Tito, Gus Hall. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Fred Weir was a third-generation red diaper baby from Toronto and a long-time member of the Canadian Communist Party. His uncle trained at the Lenin School in Moscow in the 1920s as an agent of the Communist International, the Comintern, and he spent many years in the USSR. Fred had visited a few times, had studied Russian history up to graduate level, but never wanted to live there until Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. The new General Secretary, the party's first to be born after the revolution, talked unlike any communist leader since the original Bolsheviks. Suddenly, there was the electrifying prospect of a socialism powered from below, a system focused on creative human potential rather than crop statistics. Now, I know some of you skipped this point, but if you want to continue hearing these Cold War stories, I'm asking listeners to pledge a monthly donation of at least $4, £3 or €3 Euros a month to help keep the podcast on the air, although larger amounts are welcome too. If you donate monthly via Patreon or buy me a coffee, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Fred Weir to our Cold War Conversation. Well, thanks for for coming on the podcast, Fred. Really appreciate this. I came across you through one of our listeners, Jeff Tomlinson, had emailed me and said, had I spoken to you? And when I dug into your story, I thought, wow, really need to get Fred on the show. So delighted to have you here. It's my pleasure, too. If you could just start off with, can you just tell me about your early life in Canada and, you know, what your parents did? Well, um, I am what they call a third-generation red diaper baby. I um, was born into a Communist Party family, like everybody in the family, uncles, aunts, were uh, Moscow-line communists, members, I mean, of the Communist Party. Uh, My grandfather, my father's father, had been uh, one of the original founders of the Communist Party in Canada. Uh, One of my uncles... Uh, my father's brother was trained at the Lenin School in Moscow. He became, his, he was in the class of Ho Chi Minh, Joseph Braz Tito, Gus Hall, uh, 1928. He graduated from there uh, and became, I guess, a full-fledged common turn agent. He once described himself to me as 
a Soviet working in Canadian conditions. So at least two other members of my father's family actually worked for the common turn in Moscow. Uh, I recently connected with my cousin Svetlana, who was the daughter of my father's sister, who had been born in uh, Moscow in 1940. They all, they all um, had to flee Moscow when the Nazis advanced the next year. Uh, and she ended up walking from the North Caucasus to Uzbekistan. She was a baby. But, and uh, after the war, her mother married a Hungarian communist. Uh, and she moved to Budapest, where she still lives. She's married to a very nice Hungarian fellow now. And I had not known, even known anything about her until my brother, my younger brother, uh, connected us all. And I have my, my uncle's family who were left here. Unlike me, he did not think to acquire Canadian citizenship for his children. Uh, so they were trapped here until the Soviet Union collapsed. But I uh, had studied the uh, Russian history. It was a fascination of mine since I, I was a kid. Uh, I studied it in university. I have a, an honors BA from the University of Toronto, mostly in Russian history. Uh, and I went to graduate school. Uh, I took international relations, but again, mostly Soviet studies. Uh, didn't finish my MA. I was 32 years old and I decided to go to teacher's college and join the middle class. And uh, I did. I got a teaching degree, but I instantly it was 1985. Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. And though I had never really wanted to live here before, I'd been several times and traveled around Eastern Europe. When Gorbachev came to power, I really wanted to be here. And at that point, the Canadian Tribune, which was the Communist Party's weekly newspaper, needed a new correspondent. And presumably the Soviet side was saying, don't send us some old fart, you know, send us something young and vigorous. And when they suggested me, because of my name, not because they knew me, uh, they said, yeah, yeah. And I came uh, and did that job for five years. I just want to go back a bit in, into your, your, your earlier years there. So what, what was it like being at school and being part of such a prominent communist family? In Canada, you know, it wasn't so bad. Uh, there, there were moments. Uh, I mean, I used to have to walk to school under, you know, during election periods under signs that said "Vote Communist, Vote Weir," because my father was always running in elections. I, I had a little bit of schoolyard trouble, but nothing to whine about. Um, uh, I, uh, I had pretty much a, a normal upbringing. At least that's how I see it. My parents were good parents. My mother was a trade union organizer, and then she became a teacher. She was, she taught until retirement in the Ontario school system, elementary school. My father was a union organizer. He worked for mine mill and smelter workers out in Alberta, and then he w was a full-time organizer for the Communist Party. So they were hardcore people, but they were good parents, except, you know, that there were constantly meetings going on in our house, you know, smoke-filled meetings, gr groups of people. I, got, I didn't pay much attention to it, but they were always there. It was just the, the condition in the household. It's always filled with that sort of activity. But in fairness to Canada, 
uh, I cannot think of a single way in which my life was interfered with or interrupted in some way because of that Communist Party affiliation, that thing. And Canadians in general were pretty pretty easy about it. They, they could be shocked, said, you're a what? But, you know, it was, it was, it was okay. I, I got no complaints to make. And frankly, growing up, uh, people would ask me, you know, especially teachers, would say, you know, are, are you okay at home? Uh, you know, is you know, are, you know, is there anything going on that you would tell us about or something? And I frankly thought the weirdest kids in the classroom were like Catholics. They would talk, tell you about the institution of the confessional, and and things that you know, I would think of that now that's really strange, but so it was okay. I've heard stories of. Americans of my generation, American red diaper babies who who had a tougher time of it. The United States was a a much more paranoid, uh, less tolerant kind of environment to to be the embodiment of the official enemy right there. But uh, in Canada, it was always really good. And later on, uh, when the Soviet Union was collapsing, I had no trouble being hired by Canadian press, which was the official, you know, or the, you know, it was like the AP of Canada, uh, our, our big newswire agency. They just took me on and there was like maybe one moment of controversy, some letters to the editor hit the desks and they talked to me about it, but everything was fine. Now, I am quite sure that that wouldn't happen if I were an American. Uh, I would never have made the transition to being a mainstream journalist. I have since then, but many years later, the Christian Science Monitor took me on, and they do know my background. But they're an unusual bunch of people in the first place, uh, and in the second place, that didn't seem to matter anymore. Right. Right. And, you know, at the dinner table, was the talk about politics or, or not? Mostly about politics, mostly about global affairs. I can remember all the big milestones of the Cold War. You know, my my younger brother was born on the night that Sputnik went up in 1957, and he has ever since had the nickname Sputnik. I remember blow by blow the Cuban Missile Crisis. All these things, they were just constant topics of conversation, obviously from a pro-Soviet point of view, but it was interesting and informative. And uh, I got quite, I mean, probably fed my interest in Russian history and and certainly it was an education of sorts. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So what was it like at the dinner table in August 1968 with the Prague Spring? You see, my father, uh, he was very sick by that time. He died within six months of then. But uh, I do remember him uh, being very, very pro-Soviet, like he was one who completely accepted the Soviet version of that, that it was a, a Western uh, attempt to undermine the socialist government and that there was no op- alternative but for the Warsaw Pact to step in and uh, and prevent that. It's, it's a sort of like the kind of conversations we have these days about Ukraine or uh, Georgia, or the colored revolutions that happened around this former Soviet space, uh, Russians will still sound like, you know, this, this is 
a Western conspiracy to undermine us, and we simply have to take decisive action. So my father was like that. But people in the party and the Young Young Communist League, I was a member of the Young Communist League at that point, took quite a different view. It's one of those moments when, obviously, there had been several, when faith in the Soviet Union got severely shaken and people you know, drifted away from the communist movement. You know, the Communist Party in Canada had been quite big and influential in the 30s. They actually had a member of parliament who later got accused of being a spying uh, in the first Cold War trial, but it dwindled. There was, by the time, I mean, by the 80s, it was really maybe five to 10,000 people, mostly older diehards. My father was long gone, but uh, my mother remained in the party, and, and whatever the reincarnation of the party was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, many keepers of the holy flame stayed on and still exists. I have some friends who are in it. So it's... Uh, but yes, the, the times like 1968, uh, I, I actually was coming of age in 1968, and uh, all of those events uh, in that really tumultuous year, which sort of reminds of 2020 in some ways, uh, uh, are, are kind of fixed in my memory. Right, right. So you you felt that a, a degree of liberalism was a good thing. Oh yeah, I see. I guess that's the the third generation thing. It's like you're born into a, a religious group and you don't break with them. And I did. I got educated as a Marxist, uh, but that happened in university, not in the party. I became a Marxist, and I still sort of have a lot of those inclinations, intellectual inclinations, but um, I, I didn't, I, I sort of stayed in the party, and I wasn't active, and I was obviously studying Soviet and Russian history at university, so I didn't, I wasn't what you'd call a true believer. But as I say, when Gorbachev came to power, I really got enthused. I I really resonated to, to the things he was saying and I wanted to be here uh, and I'm so glad that I took that job it's the best job I ever had uh, being the Tribune correspondent in Moscow I uh, traveled all over the Soviet Union I talked to so many people I followed the I guess it was my fate to be, preside over for my on behalf of my family preside over the collapse of the Soviet Union I learned a hell of a lot uh, and uh, well it, it and I decided to stay I was married I had children I had a daughter uh, later we got a son I had a good life here and um, I had a good job when I started working for Canadian press so I uh, and it was for me, the most interesting job in the world. So here I am, still here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm very glad you are because this is a this is a really interesting um, account you're you're giving us of of your life. Was your father standing as a as an MP? He ran in every level of elections. He ran federal, provincial, and municipal elections. He did best in uh, you know he was running as an alderman in our ward in Toronto. Uh, 
he got his best votes in the same district. But uh, if you're running uh, for as an alderman in a Toronto city election, you don't have to declare your political affiliation, although he would. Uh, but he would. It was more of a grassroots thing. He would go out and he talked, and he talked really well. He was a political animal and a really smart one. Uh, and uh, municipal politics didn't, you know, have anything to do with the Soviet Union or anything like that. It was all about nuts and bolts, local issues. And he was pretty good on that. And he he nearly won on one of the one of the races that I can't remember when it was, maybe 1964. Right. No, that, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, I was going to ask you, what was the name of your uncle who was in the same school as Tito and Ho Chi Minh? John Weir. John Weir. Okay. I was just going to look him up later on. <laughs> sure. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I hadn't realized you'd come from sort of like that dynasty of communists. Well, yeah, th- actually, I have many contemporaries. But uh, and but my family, yeah, they were a fixture of the party uh, for well, well over half a century. Now I wanted to talk to you about your time in Moscow and what was that first day like when when you arrived in in Moscow? I mean, did you have somewhere to stay at that point? What what had been organised for you? Yes, well, a communist correspondent in those days was a ward of the Central Committee. So the fiction that they created was that it was the Red Cross. But so I I was met by uh, a young man from the Central Committee who took me to a very nice flat, nothing special, typical Moscow housing, but nice flat, and uh, I was provided for, but mostly left on my own. So I I, I mean, I could... Uh, uh, what, what was hard for me was just daily life, figuring out how to do the shopping, how to get around, just learning the ropes in a new place because um, I didn't have much assistance with that. But the benefit of being a, a communist correspondent is that you can fraternize, you know, with the locals. Nobody, like, I, as far as I could, I was probably watched on some level, but there was you know, no overt controls on me. And I didn't have the paranoia of my Canadian colleagues, mainstream Canadian colleagues, which I remember well. Uh, So I just, I I made friends. There would be constant activities uh, like Canadian delegations coming, Communist Party delegations coming to Moscow. And I found it very easy to socialize with um, the, the interpreters, people who, who worked with them. Uh, my uh, wife was one of those. Uh, I, I met her. She came, She was working. She was a graduate student of history, but she was working as a central committee. She also comes from a communist dynasty, a Bolshevik dynasty. Uh, uh, her great-grandfather was Stepan Shaumian, the Armenian Bolshevik who led the Transcaucasus Bolshevik government and uh, did get shot by the British, fortunately, in 1919. I don't know if you know the story of the 26 Baku commissars, but uh, they they were sort of arrested by the local allies of the British, taken across the Caspian Sea and shot. And, uh, I say that 
was fortunate because uh, Stepan Shamyan was a major rival of Stalin. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. At that time, at the revolutionary time, and had he lived, his family would be in dire peril later on. But as it happened, he was shot by the British, and therefore he was a martyr and uh, the family were fine. Uh, but anyway, that's that, that's a bit of a... Di- an, an aside. No, that that's a really interesting aside. To be to be honest, I I knew that there'd been British intervention in the Russian Civil War, but um, I wasn't. I, I thought it was more in the in the north than the south. But uh, that's probably my limited knowledge. Arkhangelsk and in the north, but also from the south uh, into the oil fields at Baku, uh, the British intervened from that direction as well. More, everybody intervened in the Far East, Vladivostok. It is, it is an amazingly interesting chapter of history. Uh, and that, that little local story is of great significance to my family and uh, what became so later on as well. It sounds like because you were working for a communist publication, you had a different level of journalistic access compared to other foreign journalists. I think so. Um, it was it was different. The life was different. Uh, I had, I would say, much more ground level access and and easily made a lot of friends. They would be mainly around the circle, uh, the central committee, or or people that I I knew. But also, I had a, as I said, a pre existing family. My uncle, my uncle's family, were here, and I started socializing with them. Uh, it became much, much easier to live what would be a more normal life. I was still learning Russian, but lots of people did speak English or know English. Anyway, I, I seem to remember that as, as one of the happiest times in my life. You know, socially, you meet people, sit around a table, drink, uh, drink copious amounts of vodka, uh, and tomorrow didn't matter. It, it was the Soviet Union, and you can say many, many different things about it, but uh, except for those people who stepped over lines, life was pretty carefree for most people. They, they, didn't, they, they had this attitude that nothing depended on them. Uh, so the things you would do is, is drink all night. Uh, you could expound philosophically on almost any subject without fear. This was not like deep Stalin times or anything like that. Even before Glasnost and Perestroika, people were relatively easy about all that. And of course, there was um, 
uh, it was, how shall I put this, the most promiscuous place I have ever, ever been to. Like the, the, I guess sex was one of the great distractions that people were allowed, and they did indulge in it a good deal. And anyway, I, 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 I just love, I feel terribly nostalgic about that period, only on my own behalf. I'm not lecturing to other people about what they should th- say about their lives in that era, but my life was great. And because of, again, the Central Committee con- connection, I could travel anywhere in the Soviet Union. I simply put in a request, and I would go and be le- meet, met by local Communist Party people, uh, put up in a hotel. I could basically do this, and I did for five years, travel somewhere, drink with people, meet people, talk to them, drink some more, come back to Moscow, dry out, and write my story, because it was a weekly newspaper, you know. And uh, I have to say, too, that some of the best things I ever wrote were for the Canadian Tribune in in those days. And it was because in in Toronto, in the Communist Party headquarters, they had no idea what was going on in in Moscow. They just they were completely uh discombobulated by by it. But I was the Moscow correspondent. And where that might have been a lackey's job in the past, it was like in in conditions of perestroika and glasnost when you were being encouraged uh to write about all these issues, Soviet history being unveiled and uh I, uh, the, the problems of, uh, working class, you know, in their factories and the, and the various forms of national oppression. Any subject was open. You would open Russian newspapers, Soviet newspapers in those days. I'm talking about 87, 88, 89. And the most amazing things would spill out. So if I wrote about the same things, uh, there was nothing they could say in Toronto about it, and I really had a great time. It was I, I just feel so nostalgic for that. And w- what sort of subjects were you were you covering in in those reports? The, and it sounds like you were covering the the impact of Glasnost and Perestroika on the the Soviet people. That was a huge story, multi sided story, and yes. I was doing that, and I was traveling to different places and writing about, um, you know, uh, I, I actually still do this for the Christian Science Monitor, and some of the most uh, popular stories I, I do are when I go somewhere uh, out, out of Moscow, out of the ambit of Moscow. And this is a huge, diverse uh, country with so many different uh, sides to it. Always was. And if you go out to Siberia, you find a completely different reality from what you find in central Russia. I, I did a series for the Monitor a couple of years ago about uh, Buryatia, which is on Lake Baikal out in Siberia. I wrote a story about old believers who have their own communities out there. I wrote about Lake Baikal. Uh, I wrote about Buddhists because it's a Buddhist republic in Russia. I mean, there are just so many colorful and, and fascinating aspects to Russia. And I did, uh, as Tribune correspondent, do a lot of stories like that. I love doing them. 
And I had the access. I could go to Dagestan, which has like 32 official languages. I covered some grim things like the earthquake in Armenia. I still find myself covering Armenia. And of course, my my family are Armenian. Uh, The Soviet Union and Russia are are just a paradise for journalists. I, I have there's just so much here. And uh, covering the narrow political story in Moscow, though you have to do it, was never my thing. Uh, it's more about the money, many splendid levels of, of this amazing country. And I, I'm still discovering them. Yeah, you've just got to look at the map to see the the size and, and breadth of it. And obviously the Soviet Union was made up of many different nationalities um as well did you go to the the baltic states because that presumably there there were the signs of of nationalism um and independence yes yes i i did i certainly did uh i visited every single soviet republic uh during those years but i i did uh actually had my honeymoon in estonia with my wife you know it was the soviet I don't know what you want to call it, straight jacket. Uh, you wouldn't easily find people who broke out of, you know, the standard things that you were supposed to say. And perhaps you, you might say that was also a limitation I had in that I was hosted by Communist Party organizations everywhere I went. But you did uh, after, say, 1988 in the Baltics, and I visited... Uh, the three Baltic republics several times. What you first saw was um, people who would start a civil society group like a peace organization, and they would call it a peace organization. But when you listen to them carefully, you could detect that they're actually nationalists uh, pushing the limits. Another uh, sort of thing that they would they would do is start an environmental group, which was very vogue. For an example, in in Latvia, there were, was a pulp and paper mill at Yermola, which uh, was supposedly uh, polluting Soviet-type industry and uh, environment. I covered them. I went there and I covered these envir- enthusiastic environmentalists who wanted to shut it down because it was a threat to the environment. Uh, But I remember five years later going back there and talking to some of the same people after the independence of Latvia who were working to keep the pulp and paper mill going because now it was a vital part of the national economy. So, you see, I saw these changes happening, didn't often recognize what I was looking at, uh, or it took me a while to do so, but yes, it was the change came gradually. People pushed limits; they expanded. They, it didn't all like burst out into the open all at once. Yeah, yeah. And how did the Communist Party of Canada view the reports that you were sending back and publishing in the Tribune? I can remember because I traveled back to Canada several times in the. And I wrote a, a book in 1990, which I did. I did two national tours to promote. Um, they hated what I was doing. Uh, at least the leaders. I know. I knew them all personally. Old guys, and uh, you know, people 
like my uncle, Moscow-trained apparatchik types, and they were incredibly uh, disquieted by it. But there was nothing they could say because it was exactly what the leaders of the Soviet Communist Party were saying. And I was reporting on things that were, if, if anything, my perspective was more broad and and, and not emotional uh, than what you would read in, in the Soviet media on the same given day. So, uh, yeah, I can't, re- I can remember only being censored once, uh, by, uh, the leader of the communist party who really, he had some objection to something I said that he said I was overstepping my bounds, something I wrote, but otherwise they, uh, the party was divided between people who hated what was happening there, but, uh, couldn't say anything about it or, or, or were stifled because that's what was happening in the Soviet Union and everything that happens in the Soviet Union is supposed to be great. Uh, and so many people who were enthused by it as I was, I wasn't enthused by, to be frank, not, I wasn't enthused by the idea that the Soviet Union would collapse. I did not see that coming. Uh, but, uh, I was enthused by this bottom up, a kind of new currents of democracy, people speaking their minds, uh, the idea, the, the sort of stilted Soviet civil society, you know, the sort of organizations frozen in orbits around the party sun might sort of acquire a life of their own and serve purposes for which they are ostensibly designed to do. I was really enthused about that. I wrote volumes about it. I, I, I seem to be have forgotten a lot of it now because other things have overlain it. But I do recall being excited about all that and, and meeting lots and lots of people, even back in Canada, who were also really excited about it. It was a heady time. Yeah, I, I was obviously, as I always do with all my interviewees, I was doing some some research and I found an article which um, mentioned an interview I think you did in Kaluga with a local party secretary where you're you're questioning him around future plans and running for office and things like that. One of the things that Gorbachev did, and this is late Gorbachev time, like around 1990, was he tried to separate party from the executive of the country. He, he separated himself and became president. Never had it happened before. Um, he didn't have to get elected president, uh, but and he probably wouldn't have been at that point because the country was coming apart at the seams. But one of the things he did mandate is that all uh, party secretaries, party uh, people who hold an executive office need to put a democratic mandate on that. Um, it, it, it never, it, 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 it didn't have time to work itself out. I, I always thought it would work in the long run. It was just different people from those guys, mm. like that secretary you're talking about. Uh, that would have been around 1990 sometime. That, but um, it didn't have a chance in the, the, the country and system imploded and something new took its place uh there was uh you know a a democratic interregnum uh which i guess didn't 
didn't last. It, it ended in, in gunfire around the White House in, in 1993. Yeltsin rewrote the Constitution to the one we basically have now, which is a very uh, Kremlin-centric document. It doesn't it makes the the legislature, the legislature was renamed, but it, it makes it more of a, a rubber stamp, almost as much of a rubber stamp as the old Supreme Soviet was in Soviet times. So, uh, and, and the arguments that Yeltsin made at the time, and Putin continues, are that this country is too big, too complicated uh, to have a, an all-out democracy. Uh, it needs strong leadership. Uh, and so this is where we are. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's an interesting line in that in that same article um, talking about your friend Boris, who was um, beaten up by Yeltsin's police in '93, and he was. It, it says that he was speaking nostalgically about his Soviet era incarceration, and even of his KGB interrogator, which he said with whom one could discuss things intelligently. Yeah, well, that's Boris Kagerlitsky, who is still a very good friend of mine. Uh, he's uh, uh, an old left-wing fixture here. I mean, if you talk to any um, anybody who's sort of interested in the Russian left, Boris's name will come up because he, he's he's a prolific writer of books and an indefatigable organizer. He he's trying to organize independent trade unions all around Russia today. Uh, um, but yeah, he, as a young guy, as a young leftist, he got arrested, I think, in 1982 because he was putting out uh, a Samizdat leftist newsletter, social socialist uh, in, in its tone, but with a democratic, critical democratic focus. Uh, he got arrested and spent, I think, two years, two years in prison then. Uh, and he does, I mean, he was young. Prison wasn't too onerous, I guess, in those days. Uh, but he does speak nostalgically about it. And uh, then in 19, 1993, he was an elected member of the Moscow City Council, for which he recently unsuccessfully ran to, to be become a, a Duma deputy of, uh, so he's still at it, but he was then deputy of, of the city Soviet. And he went out to organize on the, on the, those, on the night of those events, really terrible events, October 3rd to October 4th of 1993. He went out and started trying to organize people to protest non-violently. Uh, against Yeltsin, and he got arrested and, and really badly beaten. And he wasn't the only one. He spent 40 hours, two days in in prison, but he that was a really rough experience. He got beaten up, and, uh, and he only got freed because Amnesty International raised the campaign. And in those days, the Yeltsin government listened to things that were coming from the West, and and they let him go, because I don't know what might have happened to him in in that difficult time, really really difficult time. Um, but that was a time when the, the Gorbachev experiment definitely ended, and the new Russia, the one we live in now, 
uh, was born. Right, right. Were you were you in Moscow when the coup occurred? I was not. I was in the Far East. I was in uh, Khabarovsk uh, when on the first day that the the nineteen ninety one the August Putsch they call it uh, occurred. I was doing one of my big stories about. You know, I was taking the Trans Siberian, stopping off and doing stories about each place. Um, and in Kabar- in Kabarovsk, uh, I found out about it. People were shocked, uh, and and there were absolutely no uh, public activity. There just no. I mean, the only demonstrations that occurred during that sixty hours or whatever it was uh, occurred in Moscow. Maybe there were some little gatherings somewhere else, but there were like fifty thousand people in the streets in Moscow at the height of it. Uh, but in the provinces, and I saw this very clearly, uh, that um, in Khabarovsk on the first day, the newspapers all printed the statement of the emergency committee. And I, I was told to get back to Moscow. And I took tr- trains, took a bus. I, 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 uh, the next day, I was in Ulan Uday. And on that, the second day of it, uh, the newspapers printed the statement of the emergency committee on one side of the front page and the statement of Yeltsin uh, on the other side of the front page. And by the third day, the end, the coup ended, and I was in Irkutsk, and the newspaper there only published Yeltsin's statement on the front page. And that's how I observed the progress <laughs> Of, of that coup. Wow. Well, there's a another interesting. Well, you've you've got so many interesting stories, but I I understand that in the spring of '91, you were invited to a garden party at the country home of Andrei Brezhnev, the nephew of the Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Do you rem- do you remember that? Can you describe? That because I think it's quite an interesting scene as to how some of these former communists had very readily grasped the capitalist opportunity. Well, yes, and that is what happened. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of the people in in the communist party elite were some of the brightest, smartest, and also best connected uh, people in the country, and also best informed people in the country. Uh, and uh, it took me a while to see how they were turning from being like they were just changing their lapel pins in a way uh, they had never, at least their generation never were like dedicated communists. And they did sense the change. So this, this particular garden party, which I, I, I think I wrote a whole article about back at the time, was in Zhukovka, Zhukovka too. There are different, Zhukovka is a sort of elite dacha settlement about 10, 10 kilometers outside of Moscow. Um, and it has different, had different compounds in those days. The, the, the dacha, the Brezhnev dacha was there, but also uh, Shostakovich. Solzhenitsyn had lived there before he was exiled. Um, uh, and at this party, 
uh, a whole number of people I knew came, and uh, they were all mostly the people I'd met uh, as communists. Someone from Pravda, it seems to me, some uh, um, a Komsomol leader, and uh, the son of uh, Andrei Sakharov was also there because Sakharov's dacha had been in that same community, um, and and they had all they all had new lapel pins. You know, they all they all were joining the business world in one way or another, trying to uh, parlay their past elite experience, connections, roots, into something new. Uh, and it, I, I don't think very many of them made it in in the new world. A different and maybe probably more ruthless type of person made it in the 90s. But um, it, was, it, was, it was a period piece. It was something I must actually dig up that old article and reread it because I put a lot of detail into it. Yeah, there's just one paragraph in the article that I I found, but it sounded like an intriguing uh, the change of the form of power in the country sort of encapsulated. Yes, without changing the guard, the guards changed their stripes. Yeah, yeah it was it was an interesting thing. I did actually write a whole book about that later on. I co-authored it with a, a Massachusetts economist. And it's published by Rutledge, two different editions of it. Uh, it's called Revolution from Above. Uh, not not a terribly original title, but it encapsulates that view of how the Soviet Union collapsed. And without uh, a changing its elite, it changed its ideology, a revolution that occurred between the ears of people who had run the country one way and then changed it into something different. Now, the revolution did eventually change the personnel, mostly, but it was amazing to me in the 1990s how many um, rich oligarchs, people like like uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, for instance, had got their start as leaders of the Komsomol. Yeah, yeah. Um, I understand you were friends with Vladimir Posner as well. Very good friends with with Posner. Uh, he's an old one of my oldest friends here. Uh, in fact, I have lunch with him quite often. He's um, he's still incredibly active. He's one of the top TV stars. He in in Russia. He was born in 1934, so that makes him 86 now. But he yeah. he look he looks great. He's healthy as a horse, and uh, extremely articulate, uh, um, has, a, has an amazing view on things because he, he goes to the United States a lot. He's an American citizen, has um, a lot of friends there, gives lectures. He teaches courses there. And he comes back here and he travels all over Russia and also gives public meetings. And he has his interview show which is called Posner on Channel One. Wow! So he's he's still because I I remember first coming across him in it must have been the eighties when he was doing those satellite link ups with the US, and uh, he was one of the presenters. Yes, because he he speaks perfect English with a New York accent. Uh, he, he he grew up in New York. 
and that was his his advantage. But he's also uh, he had spent he had came to he came to live in the Soviet Union in 1953. He worked in Radio Moscow for a long time. That's where I first met him around about 1986. Uh, I had known of him, but I I met him personally there, and we really hit it off because we have a lot in common background-wise and in, in our views of the world still. And uh, then during the later 80s, the perestroika period, uh, he, partly because of his English, but partly because he's a very innovative guy, he was involved in setting up those bridges, the satellite bridges, and quite a few other things. Uh, and so he became a star, a perestroika star. And then in the 90s, he moved to the United States where he had a talk show uh, with Phil Donahue, who's still, I guess, a good friend of his. Uh, so he he has this experience, and I think it's a unique experience of having worked in television uh, in both in the United States and Soviet Union and Russia. Yeah, he was sort of like the the friendly face of the Soviet Union on uh, Western TV to some degree, certainly in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, mostly on the issue of peace, uh, which, I mean, that was the big subject anyway, ending the nuclear standoff, um, that, that the ending the Cold War. It was all good, you know. I mean, he wasn't like defending the crimes of Stalin, or anything like that. He was he was doing things that people remember him well for. Yeah. During your period in Moscow during the Soviet time, or not just Moscow, but what, what would you say was the most interesting interview that you did during that period prior to 91? Oh, geez. Um, I should have warned you about that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> one of the guys who rose to the level of head, head of the trade unions, I'm just, just blocking on his name, Gennady, uh, was head of the trade unions. Then he became a top guy uh, uh, in the Politburo. He joined the Polit late Gorbachev Politburo. At that time, I interviewed him. He more or less, in so early 1991, surprised me in that interview uh, by laying out all the objections to Gorbachev within the upper ranks of the party. Yanayev? No. Yanayev, Yanayev, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yanayev. Gennady Yanayev, exactly. That's the guy. Uh, that's not me just, showing off my knowledge. Uh, that's just me Googling there. <laughs> oh, okay, yes, he, because he did become a member of that emergency committee. He was yeah. there, you know, if you, all those pictures of the guys and his hands are shaking. It's his hands that are shaking. Oh, right, yeah, now I've got him. Okay, right, so tell me about that interview. So, so uh, no, he just, it just blindsided me because – I assumed it was all good. The party was all behind this. I mean, I knew that there was divisions in the party, but I didn't realize at that level, uh, but that there would be bitter and irreconcilable differences with what Gorbachev was doing. And if I had put it together, connected the dots, as I probably, as I wish I had, 
I could have predicted the the coup that was to come because it was his his hood was that trenchant and to be giving a an interview to a foreign correspondent even if he was a communist and saying those things was truly remarkable um so anyway yes i guess as things go that would be the most interesting moment yeah and what what year was was that that you did that 1991 it was okay like so spring of 1991 wow wow you could have had an exclusive there if well i did have an exclusive but <laughs> i didn't i didn't uh understand what i had at that time and in fairness to me almost nobody did like it's not as though i were blinkered or blinded and didn't see things. Uh, I saw things. I saw the, the turmoil and the division, and I, I saw all that. But um, how shall I put this? You know, the realities of the present, this powerful state, you walk around, you talk to people, life is going on normally. The power structures are there. Everything seems immovable and permanent. And you know, it's it's it, it's pretty hard to pick up all those little signs that that say this is going to come to an end. Nobody predicts that, uh, and and I've seen many things since, where you know, if only you had realized because because things do change catastrophically. Even uh, things come to a head, they break apart, and. Uh, but in this case, the Soviet Union had seemed so powerful and so permanent, and uh, perhaps I was predisposed to wish it would transform. But I, I, I'm, I'm not alone in not having predicted its demise. Yeah, it's very easy to uh, look back and say, "Oh, yeah, it was this, it was that." But when you're actually there on on the ground, these things don't look apparent. And certainly in my life. It looked like the Soviet Union was going to be there for another hundred years. You know, there, there was no sign. Admittedly, mine was a, a limited view from from being in the UK. But you know, there there appeared to be no sign there was going to be any any split or any disintegration. Um, and when it happened, it was just absolutely stunning. Yes, and and yet the signs were all around, uh, uh, and I was. I was right there and picked up on some of them, but did not make the connections. And and this is highly relevant because, um, you know, you look at the United States today, I'm not making any comparisons. I'm just saying massive turmoil shaking the foundations. There's a lot about it that reminds me of the last days of the Soviet Union. And of course, it's a very different, it's a constitutional democracy and 240 years old and all that. I'm not, predicting its collapse but and yet you simply can't you you simply can't imagine that uh you can't you just you look at it and you say well of course they'll get through this they'll reform they'll change uh this this is something that i think it's not just uh bad analytics it is some human thing that you you simply we simply cannot imagine sweeping catastrophic fundamental change happening and we're always surprised when it does yeah yeah how how did your life change with 
the change of power because obviously you're appointed there as a communist correspondent. Um, what what happened to your status? Oh, it uh, it ended. It ended before the collapse of the Soviet Union. But uh, I had uh, married, as I said, I mm-hmm. moved in with my family. I, they lived in uh, you know the dominant Aboriginal, that big gray building across from the Kremlin. We had a nice. They had a nice flat there, and I moved in there. Uh, and in 1990, I started working freelance for the Canadian press. Uh, and later, I later became their only guy in, in Moscow. But, um, so I had already made the transition myself. So my life didn't change. But of course, that job disappeared. Uh, and some of the privileges or so on went away. But it, it didn't matter. I had a much better life living with my family than was ever afforded to a communist yeah. correspondent. And and what sort of impact did it have on your family? Because you said that your your wife's your wife came from a quite a communist dynasty as well. Yes, yes, but they they weren't like they weren't part of the power structure. They, I mean, they were what you'd call communist party intellectuals. My wife's grandfather was the editor of the Great Soviet Encyclopedia. Uh, my mother-in-law, who is still with us, uh, is. Uh, leading India specialist. She's still the head of the Center for Indian Studies at the Institute of Oriental Studies. So they uh, they weren't like, like their lives weren't disrupted in the way they would have been if they were like central committee members or mm. something like that. They, they just, they transferred from, in fact, I, I don't know. My mother-in-law was a member of the Communist Party, but, um, my wife never was. Uh, she never joined when she, in the late 80s. She started to work for the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail as a sort of office manager. So, no, we had we had made this transition uh, and the family didn't suffer. You didn't. It isn't as though uh, if you were a party member, you would lose your accommodation. Everybody got to keep their flat and even privatize it when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, that was the main asset uh, our family had. And in other ways, your status, your social status didn't, didn't I mean, having been a former communist means nothing in Russia. Nobody, I mean, nobody gets punished for it, never or ever did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there wasn't the, the same. If you try and compare it with something like East Germany, it was a, a very different uh, transition, and you're not going to have people coming back saying this was my house prior to, um, you know, the communist period or anything like that, which you had in uh, East Germany. Yes, no property issues, but also just no political issues. Much of the communist party elite uh, transited almost seamlessly to becoming Democrats of one stripe or another, and they, they, I mean. The country has undergone a really massive social revolution in the 30 years since. Mm. But the transition was, it didn't, as I said, it, it was intra elite. It wasn't some other outside forces overthrowing them and, and then forcibly removing them from power and destroying their base, as happens in real revolutions. 
this was the elite changing their ideological allegiance and, and carrying on. Yeah. Yeah. And your your writings for the Tribune, are they available online anywhere or, or not? Unfortunately not. Um, I would love that if they were, because I often find myself wondering, uh, remembering, trying to remember. And I have a stack of them, a har- of hard copies, somewhere here in, in probably in our um, – we have an outside storage shed. It's, they're probably st- – there somewhere i don't know if there's moldering or not but uh i I, unfortunately no i'm so sad about that i did i I did have a book of uh, collected articles uh which is long since out of print so i don't uh so no i'm sorry but it must be somewhere there must be you know when you write something down it's printed in black and white you'd like to think that it's eternally out there but it's not online yeah i think they're available on microfiche but um yeah not not online sadly well there was no one with an incentive to put them online after the collapse of the soviet union and the tribune went defunct uh so uh who would do that but i wish someone had And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.